Hello and welcome to Quacks Who Quaff. My name is Jamie Thomas and my fellow quacks are Canal Go Hill. Hello, Canal. Dr. Thomas, always a pleasure. Bella Shah, hello, Bella. Hello, good evening, Jamie. And Kim Williams, hello, Kim. Hello. We are the quacks and we gather around to discuss the history of medical sciences whilst quaffing a particular wine. What wine are we quaffing today, Canal? It looks a beautiful wine as it stands. The bottle is lovely. It's got those cross keys, you know, like from those. Um, what do you call it? From the hotel. What's those, what's those hotel people at the front desk? I can't remember the name of them now. Concierge. Concierge. You know, they wear the cross keys. It's got that on the bottle, which makes me think it must be very posh. I like it. This is already Don't the most you... middle class podcast ever. Well, no, no, I like it. Keep going. Like it. So it's a Chateauneuf de Pape. Yes. Chateauneuf. I might be. I might be. You no, know, that is it. Chateauneuf de Pape. It looks like a 2012 bottle. I just popped the foil off and. Beautifully, the cork has got 2012 imprinted on it. That's, that's production values there. And Kim has taken a photo of it. So the reason I brought this is, this is kind of, if you guys, so you I mean, you've very kindly invited us around to your house again, uh, but if you were doing a dinner party and you'd say to me, bring a bottle of red, this is my kind of, this is a go-to red. If I was stuck in any supermarket and I was like, oh God, let's get a nice red. Uh, this is my go-to red. It looks good. It looks really solid. Um, cool. So uh, this is from the Rhone Valley. Um, it is a an AOC. I'm not going to say what that stands for in French, but that basically means it's a protected area. It has to come from that area. Mm. Uh, and this is a mix of grapes. So there's quite a few in here. There's some Shiraz. There's some Cabernet Sauvignon. There's a nice mix of it. Uh, yeah. Do you want to start? It looks his, excellent. Let's get his pour. this up. Let's put a cork. So I found. You know what, this is a bottle of wine, so you know when on the top of the wine, so this is a corked bottle again, I should add. And you know when you take the seal off, the metallic seal, so I had to use a knife, and it's the thickest metallic seal I've ever seen in a bottle of wine. Mm -hmm. There we are, open. Cork's nice, smells good on the cork, looks dark. Good. And here we are. I haven't corked it, so that's step one done. <laughs> See why I so Chateau Neuf de Pape literally means the Pope's new uh, new castle. It's lovely. Oh, okay. So in 1308, Pope Clement V um, moved the papacy from Rome to Avignon, uh, and while he was there, he discovered that he quite liked wine, um, and he did a lot to promote it whilst he was Pope. Uh, and he was Pope during the uh, the Black Death. Cool. So you could almost call this the Pope's wine. Yeah, Pope's pretty wine. much. Yeah. He's getting messed up there in his... So what do you guys think of it, having poured it now? So this is poured very, again, very bright. It looks very bright. I can... Cheers, everyone. Cheers. Pass around the glasses. Cheers. This is poured, again, a really ruby red. A Cheers. little bit darker on... A little bit darker than... Cheers. 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 I shall. I can. It's darkish. I can definitely see. No, I can see through it. Sort of medium body. So it's quite dark, isn't it? I can it's not really as... see Bella when I hold it up. It's so. definitely darker. <laughs> I'm wine. It's definitely darker than the last reviewed wine. I can tell you, but it's still got. It's not really, really heavy. Well, so this is a 15%. You said earlier. Yeah, and you can tell because the legs on this are nonsensically long. So, so you, you swirl we, that. We should say that the legs are when you swirl it around. Swirl it, you'll get what you call the teardrops. So you get the film of um, alcohol and 
depending on how long it, the teardrops run down the side of the glass tells you something about the alcohol content. And this has got very, this, and it tells you a bit about the thickness of the wine as well. So this has got very long legs. It just, the, the little teardrops take ages to go down and they kind of almost hold their shape. So you can tell this is a boozy, boozy wine. And what, what, what proof is it? What was it, Bella? 15%. Yeah. 15%. So, so definitely. What is the booziest one? I should point out, had. none of us are driving today. Mm -hmm. uh, this is all very Drink safe. responsibly. Yeah, so supposedly the longer your legs are on your wine, and maybe in life, the better. Um, <laughs> oh, God, I'm scuffing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the more viscous it is, and then, as Canal said, the more alcohol content you have. So. So hopefully, it smells it smells boozy. To be honest, it smells booze. It first. tastes boozy. To be you smell booze first, followed by cherries and like forest fruits. There's a bit of plum there as well, I think. Plummy mm. stone fruits. Mm. Have you been reading the back of the bottle? Mm -hmm. <laughs> no, but what, I, what I like about it is you get that sweetness, and then there's a slight. Not quite bitterness, but there's a bit after. There's it definitely a bit of tannin. It's, it's a it doesn't end on a sweet note. That's that tannin bit that you get with it. It's a bit herby. It's almost like rosemary. So, tannins I've heard described as basically if you imagine an old tea bag put on your tongue, that is what tannins taste yeah, like. Because tea has tannins in them as well. It takes it's a dryness almost. It takes away the moisture, and you kind of want tannins to balance the sugar. Because that's how you get a good wine, is not too much tannin, but not too much sugar either, apparently. So, we've started quaffing, um, and by the end of this podcast we will give it a score out of five quacks. Um, so let's have a, let's, let's enjoy our wine. But we're also not just here to quaff, we are also here to enjoy the history of medical sciences. So, uh, our first story today comes from you, Bella. Yes. And what is it? So... My working day generally involves a lot of recommendations around analgesics, so either prescribing or what we like to call deprescribing. And obviously in the news everyone will be aware that there has been lots of concern about the amount of opiates being prescribed and being taken around the world, particularly in the USA. Well it's just come up in the UK, it was in the newspaper the other day in the UK, I think it tripled, like the opiate misuse had tripled or something like that in the last Also, my first question to you guys is, how many prescriptions do you think in the UK are written for opioids? Because it's, it's going to be a fair whack. I'll, I'll just uh, throw in it. Pick a number. 17 million. Okay, mm, 17 million is our first guess. Is that a bit high or a bit low? It's a bit low. Is it a bit low? 50 million. <laughs> Way too high. Oh. We'd be in USA territory if we were thinking. So I'm going with 20 million, in the region of 20 million. Okay, so the correct number is approximately 23 million. Thank you, I'm so serious, but some pharmacist mic drop. Hi, <laughs> Canal. Canal's left the podcast. Doctors don't have so 23 million prescriptions a year. Opiates. In 2017, there were 23.8 million prescriptions in the UK and just for I opioids. Right in thinking last week, Johnson and Johnson are having to pay out yes. like five, six hundred million dollars in lawsuits to yeah. people they've who are addicted to opiates in yes. the US. That was wow. a very so big, basically like so basically it's like the tobacco companies now they're being treated like you've basically through your marketing. Obviously, the US is different. You've caused that addiction. You've caused addiction. It's a very landmark case, that. Yeah. Because it was a known side effect at the time, so it's one of the only only ones where a known side effect at the time has then had litigation brought mm. 
20, 30 years later. It's a very odd case, that one. Mm. So, So 23 million a year. Yes, so the history of actually opiates starts with the opium poppy um, way back in 3400 BC um, with the ancient Sumerians. Cool. So we're in the Middle East. Yeah, so it starts off in the Middle East. Mesopotamia. Yeah, exactly so. Um, And funnily enough, its use, even then, was recreationally and medicinally, and that hasn't really changed throughout time. So it used to be known for them as the joy plant because it had beautiful (laughs) red flowers. Well, that's it. Because of the flowers. Because, well, because of the flowers, maybe some recreational use. Am I right in thinking that the opium lives in inverted commas, in the, the latex of the poppy. So yes, that's the that kind of correct. the sappy stuff that correct. leaks out. Yes. So you could probably imagine somebody saw a poppy leaking or maybe ate the poppy and went, mm, mm. this is quite nice, I like this. That's so that, it. that actually brings me on to my first fun fact for you guys. Oh, cool. Fun fact. So, the word meconium which, as we all know, refers to <laughs> newborn stools. Oh, this is taking a turn. Cheers, everyone. Oh, yeah. I've never heard it. So that's baby's first poo. Baby first poo, yeah. Yeah. Is derived from the Greek for opium-like, um, because it used to refer to weaker parts of the opium poppy that were used to produce opium. Mm. I have no idea how the two are related. Less fun Where to we've try. got meconium cool. from. That is cool. Yeah. Meconium. So... We started in 3400 BC, and then the history of it goes that it travelled towards the ancient Greeks, the Persians and the Egyptians, where again it was used to help with sleep, pain, and it's also documented as being used as an anaesthetic during surgery, even mentioned in Homer's Odyssey. So then it moves from ancient Greece um, into China and East Asia, and this is when we're at about the 6th, 7th century. and throughout uh, Myanmar, which used to be known as Burma and Thailand, and those two countries are still today the two largest producers of the opium poppy in the world. Yep. Illegal. Yes, I will add that. So India is the legal producer. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um, and Jay-Gay. over the course of history, there have also been two opium wars as well fought against the British and the Chinese. Mm-hmm. Um, and the British were wanting to keep routes open for trafficking opium, opium across all the British empires. Well, it's because they were, they for the British Legion, morphine was a big thing in the army, in the military, wasn't it? Absolutely, so and that's the, where that they, came from. They gave their army people morphine to treat wounds and stuff. And Plus, essentially, again, I, I don't think the British are always the good guys mm. in history, which is kind of against what I was taught at school, but there we go. Um, <laughs> Just drop that in. And kind of a little bit against, you know, what Boris Johnson would have us believe. But the British have not always been nice, and we kind of wanted... China were very addicted to the they opium, were, yes. and we wanted to And it was to becoming a problem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the Chinese were thinking, we don't want this in our country, yeah. we want out. Um, so that led to actually a lot of Chinese moving to the USA after the second opium war was fought, um, specifically to California. Um, and this was part of the 1849 gold rush. Um, and there they took obviously their habit of smoking opium with them. So is this where the dens come from? This is them? where opium dens come mm. from, ah. which are known today as Chinatown. Chinatowns were originally opium. 
Well, opium, opium dens, yeah, they used to be called. So this is there, like when you see on the TV shows where they come into a smoky room, yes. and you've got like Johnny Dim Depp lighting. lying there with a big pipe and the smoke coming. Yeah. yeah. Well, so dim sum is my opinion. originated from the Chinese. <laughs> when it was introduced into the USA, it used to be known as a patent medicine, i.e., the ingredients in this opium were secretive because they induced these hallucinogenic, amazing effects, cool. and we still use that term today. So when we talk about patents for medicines, we talk about drug companies keeping their almost recipes for their that secret. secret. Yeah, so that's where that term originated from as well. So yeah, so we have opium being used worldwide. And as always, German scientists thinks I can make this better or I can formulate it in such a way that it will be more useful in terms of medicinal use. German engineering at its finest. Yep. So mid-1800s, we have a German scientist called Friedrich Stirner who synthesised <laughs> morphine from opium, um, which was ten times stronger than opium itself. Mm. Um, and then from that, we have all of our opioid, synthetic opioids. So then, my next question to you guys, how many opioids can you name? Opioids. Um, quick fire round. Or opiates. Yeah, I feel like we should... This, we this should include opiates. Opioids, yeah. So just, just, just to throw this out there, opiate and opioid, they are different terms. Explain. So, from my understanding, I feel like I should research it. From my <laughs> understanding, if I think this is right, an opiate is a product that is derived from the natural original opium. Opium poppy, So yes. it has this particular chemical structure with this weird nitrogen ring attached to another ring and it has to have that structure to be qualified as an opiate so that's like morphine um diamorphine don't name too many okay, okay. <laughs> all right, all right. Whereas i can name two now <laughs> whereas an opioid an opioid is a product that can agonize the opioid receptor uh. so an opiate can be an opioid but an opioid is not necessarily an opiate. Yes, absolutely. I think yeah, yeah, that's what yeah. I believe. So yeah, they are slightly uh, subtle terms. And by yeah. agonise, we mean bonds with that receptor and gets your desired effect. Exactly, exactly. Start you off. Yeah. Morphine. I've already mentioned also, that. We're one. naming. We're naming. Diamorphine. Diamorphine. Great. Are we going around in a circle? Oh God, so much pressure. Okay. <laughs> um, what have you prescribed today, Kim? <laughs> yeah. Tramadol. Hey, there you go. Um. So we've had morphine, dimorphine, tramadol. I'm going to go pethidine, mm -hmm. just for something Ooh, really interesting. A bit old different. school. Well, Harold Shipman was addicted to pethidine. Pethidine's a good drug, also known for our American listeners as meperidine mm. in, uh, in the States. Does methadone count? It does, absolutely. Brilliant. there we go. It's got methadone. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Mm -mm. Getting harder. Uh, oh. Is codeine in there? It is, absolutely. Codeine. One of the first drugs synthesised from after morphine. So I can very easily then say dihydrocodone because it's a slightly different drug. <laughs> well, that's easy. Well, I'm going to go with the opposite of methadone. Heroin. Heroin? Di yeah. Diamorphine. Didn't we say diamorphine already? Or? Well, yeah. Well, no, we haven't said diamorphine yet. I have said diamorphine. You've said diamorphine. Oh, have you? Oh, okay. Heroin. Another one for Well, heroin is a brand name of diamorphine. You oh. can't have that. Fiddlesticks. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, no. Oromorph. No, that's just more. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> uh, I feel like I'm winning at this because. Uh, yeah. Well, you're a pharmacist, yeah. so you should win at it. That's, I'm just thinking of all the different. Codeine phosphate. No. <laughs> <laughs> or no other sorts of codeine, what I mean. Uh, 
You've named Tramadol, haven't you? Yeah, we said Tramadol. Think, um, think recess, think anaesthetists. Think patches, maybe. Yeah, think patches. Oh. What have we got? Uh, Butrans patch. Yeah. Which is... The drug is... God knows. Come on. It so also Butrans. starts with a... B, I feel like. We'll give, we'll give Jamie that. Buprenorphine. Buprenorphine, there you down. go. I knew it. I was on the tip of my tongue. There's another patch as well. Strontanel? Yeah. Fentanyl, which can also be used IV. Very good. Very, very effective drug IV as well. Very potent. So if we're on the fentanyls, I'll go for alfentanil. Okay. A more potent version of fentanyl. I'm kind of out. This is embarrassing. Wow. Kim. Yeah, I can't. It's hard. Short of pulling out the your BNF, the, yeah, my <laughs> BNF app. Mm. So, so we have a couple, well, right, more than well, a, a few. Can, I'm gonna, I, I get to play games. So okay. Get okay. Oh, you've won. You don't have to carry on showing off. Showing off. Remy fentanyl. Yes. Ah. Is another one. Is is the probably the most for probably some anaesthetists might be listening to this screaming at them at the, their uh, earphones right now. So I'm trying to remember. Remy fentanyl is famous because. There was a hostage crisis somewhere in... Oh, I can't remember where it was now. I feel like I should look this up. I'll look it up later, but I'll come back to Remy Fenty. So the one that These all of us have mixed off is, missed off is oxycodone. Oxy! <laughs> Damn it! Oh, should have got that. We love a bit of... Uh, we love a bit it of was on the tip of my... Um, I prescribed it the other day. That's it. <laughs> Oxycodone. I edit this podcast. I can do anything. Yeah, I win. Excellent. If you dare. Against <laughs> <laughs> the spirit. Of yeah, so, because I've got an Obzingani background, I'm going to focus a little bit more on pethidine. Mm -hmm. um, so, pethidine was widely used throughout the 19th century for uh, in whilst women were in labour. Two main reasons: it was cheap to make and it was easy to administer. Um, and ironically, it was intended when it was synthesised to be less toxic and less addictive than morphine. But actually, the opposite is true. Oh, really? It's probably more toxic because its metabolite, which is known as norpethidin, has higher toxicity than methadone's uh, metabolite. And it also has effects on a wide range of different receptors. So whereas morphine mainly binds to and activates the mu receptor, Pethidine also affects the kappa receptor, which is why one of its other uses is also for shivering after uh, anaesthetic surgery. Mm. That's where that comes from. Mm. So what's awful, the reason that we use it more in obstetrics? It was because it was, again, cheap, easy to administer, and it was thought to be less toxic than oh. morphine at the time. Okay. So we've now moved sort of more towards diamorphine in obstetrics, particularly at NUH, I will just add. I think NUH. is a big drug in America. I think it's a brand name. still used yeah, in America. I feel like it's still used Demerol. a lot. Yes, Demerol. Yeah. Demerol's a brand. Demerol's a big thing in America. They, huh. they love a bit of Demerol in America, I think. And again, across the, if you think about worldwide, it's still, it is still used for obstetrics in labour. Is it in still labor. cheap? Yeah. That will help it being mm. used very commonly. And still widely available. Hmm. Mm. Cool. That's yeah. it. No, I want to quickly come back to the because uh, I knew that Kenny Canal has been Wikipediaing. Well, I don't I want you to think that this is off the top of his head. Oh, how dare you! But if you've beaten me on that, I'm not having you going that. Oh, you know, I know this off the top of my head. You've Wikipedia'd it. I had to. Well, I, I realised there was which some is not an appropriate thing. information source. <laughs> just saying. <laughs> 
So welcome to our Wikipedias or whatever. <laughs> I'll tell you about uh, the first kind of piece of legislation that was passed against the opioids. Where, which country do you think passed this? Any guesses? Um, Somewhere in Europe. Europe. That's not the UK. Well, what China had such a problem with it, could it have been China? It's actually the USA, because the USA. Chinese bought it to the, uh, to the USA. And they went, we've got this problem. Like they went, US. we've got this problem. So the Harrison Narcotics Tax Act was passed in 1914 and controlled the safe use of, well, it was legislation to control and limit the amount of opiates, so this included everything that had been synthesised up to that point. Mm-hmm. due to increasing levels of opium use throughout the USA. And then subsequently, we've had so many pieces of legislation across the world introduced, and now a lot of these are classified as Class A in this UK, and the control in terms of sale and also supply by doctors is heavily restricted. Mm. Um, and we all know doctors love writing out a good old controlled drugs prescription, don't they? We're so good at it. With that quantity <laughs> and words, words and figures. And, yeah. Yeah. Opium addiction. How many people worldwide do you think are addicted to opiates? Oh, a lot. Oh. Depends on what you mean by addicted to opiates. So being treated for addiction. Or being treated. A lot. I was going to say, there's going to be a lot of people probably flying under that radar. It's It's actually less than you think, because this is people that have sought help from a doctor and being treated. It's still going to be millions. Yes, it's still in the millions. And I don't know if this figure is correct, by the way. This is just one that I've pulled off the internet. I'm going for 15 million people. No, no, I think it's more than that. I think worldwide, 15 million people. Okay. Being treated. Being treated. I'd say about 10 million being treated. Yeah. Oh, gosh. my, My first instinct was 6 million, but now I'm, I'm feeling like I'm underestimating. Okay. What are you going to go for? I'll stick with six. Six. Then it's we've got a range. 16. Oh. oh. So if you add me and Kim together, we got the right number. There we go. Boom. Team well done, Kim. <laughs> yeah, probably double, triple that in terms of... Yeah, because that's people who've actually been identified exactly. and being, actually want to be helped, isn't it? Yeah. So that's, that's opiates for you. Nice. Just yeah. I'm just throwing this in there just because I have wikied this appropriately now. The <laughs> Moscow... The look you just gave me was evil. <laughs> it wasn't evil at all. It was evil. Evil, you bastard. Um, it was, it's fine. <laughs> this is a family podcast. <laughs> the rating just went up. <laughs> the Moscow Theatre hostage crisis of 2002. Okay. This is, you see, it came back to me. I knew it was in a hostage crisis. So this was where there was, it was in uh, the Dubrovka Theatre in Russia, where there were 50 armed Chechens that took 850 hostages in the theatre. And long story short, at the end of the, well, to bring the hostage situation to, to a close, the Russian government authorised an inhaled powerful opiate gas, or theorised to be an inhaled opiate gas. Uh, the Russians have never actually confirmed what they pumped in. They pumped in this gas to try and anaesthetise everyone in there and then safely resolve it, but they ended up killing something like 150 of the hostages oh, gosh. with it. And so it's been surmised from the treatment uh, of the casualties and the pre- presentation 
that they pumped in something that was about a hundred times more potent than remifentanil. Oh my goodness. So, and remifentanil is possibly the most potent opiate that known to man. So another one exists. As it stands. So it was a more purified version of remifentanil that was pumped into that theatre and it just, so parts per million kill people through res respiratory inhalation. It you of a gas chamber, doesn't it? Yikes. It does sound that like Sounds that. Like a gas That's chamber. scary. I should say it was never confirmed, it was never tested, but um, Vladimir Putin, theory. ladies and gentlemen. What a guy. I believe that was, I believe it might have been Gorbachev at that time, possibly. In 2002? 2000... No, 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 it would have been. Well, okay, whether it... I, I don't want to make an enemy out of Putin in this yeah. podcast. But, <laughs> yeah. Um, Please don't, yeah, we don't want a podcast where we get... Hail Mother Russia. <laughs> <laughs> that's was, that's was So I think that's a really complicated relationship we have with opiates, isn't it? I think. Yeah, we love them because well, it's they really are hard. amazing in yeah. terms of as a painkiller. They've revolutionised... I mean, absolutely. when you think of painkillers, you always think of opiates. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. Well, and, and yeah, thinking about what we see day to day at work, mm. you know, on in obstetrics, in A and E, chronic God, God. pain. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's will have changed people's lives, but there are consequences. Mm. It's a. Uh, I mean, we 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 use a lot of opiates in ED, really, don't we? But I mean, quite often. I think the emergency department is an area where acute use of opiates is actually quite reasonable and we see people 10 out of 10 pain. Mm. But I think justifying ongoing use of opiates at high doses, I saw a chap who was on a nonsensical amount of Zomorph, so modified release morphine, like a fair crack, 150 to 200 milligrams of modified release morphine on That's top of a fentanyl patch, on top of tramadol, Oh wow! So for those who aren't medical, that's a lot. That's, that's that is a that's significant opiate. Per all the eyebrows in the room are up. Well, yeah, it someone... is enough to to put a horse down. Yeah, so, someone who's opiate naive yeah. would be having real. Yeah, so problems, problems, they'd be done. Well, that thing in A and E is the fact that actually, if you look at our crest for the Royal College of Emergency Medicine, mm. there is an opium poppy. Right ah, well. Wow. So it is a uh, bred right very, into you. That's very interesting. Yeah, and. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I think, um, before we go to the next story, I remember reading somewhere that two of two of the first plants that human beings ever began actually growing, so this is the point where we developed, where we were settling down and we were actually growing things and we were building our society, two of the first things that we ever started growing were grapes, for what we're drinking now, <laughs> and poppies. That's very, very appropriate. I feel like. <laughs> so while we were growing grain, obviously for all that, but we were also we were like, right, great, we want to get drunk, we want to get. Yeah, I've just looked up that logo and I've never twigged. I've never. Is, that. I'm looking at it right now, and that is amazing. There is I've an opium poppy right there. That is amazing. How relevant. Wow. Very relevant. Thank you. I think that deserves a cheers. Cheers. Oh, cheers. Cheers. cheers to the history of opium and and the Royal College of Medicine. And the Royal College of Medicine. Cheers. <laughs> Brilliant, so that's our first story. On to our second, on to the amazing Kim Williams. Oh, am I going? Cool, okay. So we are recording this podcast in um, September. Yes. I had to really think just then. <laughs> I am sometimes awake listening. So the last episode you were post night, you have no excuse today, you've been on days. Yeah. Um, so we're recording this in September. So I want you all to sort of cast your mind back um, to the 1400s. What would you be worried about 
as your average English peasant. What what do you what springs to mind like immediately? Black death. Yeah, black mm. death. Any others? The sweating sickness. The sweating sickness. The sweating that sickness. That sounds very obsanguiny. <laughs> <laughs> a complete fit, healthy. Mm. I was. Uh, this takes us back to what we talked about in our last podcast. I was going to say thirty-year-old because we're young and strapping people, mm. but back then maybe old not. Old age, near the end of their lives. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you know, in their prime, eighteen-year-old healthy adult um, wake up one morning feeling absolutely fine and by the end of the day was dead and it absolutely decimated the population so up to 50% of people who were struck down with this illness dropped dead how have I not heard of this? It's a bizarre one and it wasn't around for very long and and we just don't know very much about it and thinking about the Tudors um, you could argue that this disease played into them even coming into existence. So are you familiar with the background of um, how the Tudors came into their dynasty? So it's the White Tudors. Henry VII was the first of the Tudor dynasty, wasn't he? The White War of the Roses. The War of the Roses. War of the Roses was when the Tudors came to prominence, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. That's Henry Tudor was of the House of House of Lancaster. 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 The Red Rose, yeah. The Red Rose. And the White the Rose. Or the House of York. With the White Rose. White Rose. I don't know. Which was uh, Richard III. Richard III. And they, yeah, Henry VII defeated... At the Richard Battle of Bosworth. Battle of Bosworth, that's the one. In August 19... Uh, in August 1485. <laughs> that's the one. <laughs> and, um... Henry the Seventh. Um... He had he'd been brought up in France, very pertinent to our wine choice for this podcast. Um, and any ideas of how he came to England to take power and, and win that battle? Well, beyond before that battle, I don't know a great deal. So Ryan thinking his claim was very weak, isn't that right? Yes. It wasn't a particularly strong claimant and he needed the French anyway on board. Yes. So I can hardly get my head around his claim. (laughs) (laughs) Very weak. (laughs) So he, so his mother, um, the Lady Margaret Beaufort, was the great granddaughter of John of Gaunt, who was the Duke of Lancaster, who was the fourth son of Edward III had his his mum was pretty smart um and she was determined and um, that he was destined to be the king of england and worked sort of very hard because you know what i've worth, just throw this in there where i've heard the story is this is where they've taken some of the game of thrones law from oh. so the mum is Cersei Lannister. All right. Some of her, yeah, some yeah. of that, who had so, incest so and was very keen that her children become royal kings. Dan and, Jones, who's a historian, and he's like the Brian Cox of historians because he has tattoos and he wears leather jackets. Um, 
he says whenever because he does a lot about the Wars of the Roses and he calls it the real game of Thrones. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's how he's called uh, it. It's it's absolutely crazy. It's insane, like family against family. Yeah, yeah. Um, and holding grudges and playing the long game. Um, so yeah, Margaret was was on it. She was determined that her son was going to be. King of England. And so she recognised very early that even though his claim was weak, he had a claim. And we're talking a period in history where people just dropped dead out of nowhere. You, you know, if, if there was someone that was perceived as young and weak, they were just thrown off. <laughs> um, so she removed him from that situation and sent him to France with his uncle, I believe. Um, over to France where he was brought up um, from a very young age. Um, and so anyway, when kind of the time was ripe and there were, there'd been a couple of periods where he had tried and failed because of weather and the channel and, you know, things mm. were pretty hard back then. Um, he came over with a French force. And there is, that was one of the first summers that the sweat appeared. And there is a train of thought that it came with this okay. body of soldiers. Wow. Um, you know, we can imagine it's a time period where hygiene isn't brilliant. They'll have all been crammed together on vessels crossing the channel. Mm. Um, and they've brought something with them. Um, and so as this new terrifying disease, so like I said, it... it you started off with completely fit, healthy people, and it did seem to be a disease predominantly of the young, um, and, it, and it seemed to affect the the rich and the affluent as much as it did the poor. Anne Boleyn have it and survived. She did, yes. Wow. Yeah. Um, Cardinal Wolsey had it, um, and again, this is why why Henry Tudor was so terrified of it. Henry VIII was so terrified of it because it it entered the court. It there wasn't hiding from it. It it started off with people completely well, um, and had to. They got a sense of unease, a sense of not being quite right, not feeling well. Impending um, doom. Impending doom. <laughs> and then they would start violently sweating, mm. um, shaking and headaches. Mm. Just saying, this is sounding more and more like um, phospholipid poisoning to me, just saying. <laughs> Some, someone, a time traveller, <laughs> went back. Vladimir Putin is travelling through time. The man wants to be stopped. Um, Stop it, hail Mother Russia! <laughs> Um, yeah, and there, there wasn't any kind of cure they could identify, and you either died or you lived. And it seemed like if you could mm. get through the first 24-hour period, you were very likely to recover. Mm. Um, mm. But it didn't confer immunity to future outbreaks. So people would get it twice in theory? So people could get it so more than like once. it's not like smallpox, you got it once mm. and yeah. you were okay. Yeah. You... So again, you that's can, brutal. Yeah, you can that's understand no the, the the terror that came with it. It was yeah. it was it came out of nowhere. Mm. People were just struck down with it. Mm. Lots of people died. Um, so yeah, thinking about how it changed history. Um, so this this disease seemed to first appear after Henry the Seventh came across to the UK to claim his throne back, mm. and 
at that battle, Battle of Bosworth that you've mentioned that was kind of the turning point, yeah. um, Richard III, his key ally, Lord Stanley, um, who was had promised to bring about 30% of the army for Richard, um, used fear of the sweat um, as a reason not, not to show up. There's, I mean, he also, if I am right in thinking, Lord Stanley was Margaret Beaufort's new husband. The plot thickens. So there is, there is a, maybe he had a different agenda. I think that's right. he blamed the illness Yes, not, he blamed, up on the, he day. blamed the illness. So he did like we all did at the on school and pulled sickie. <laughs> Some of us never pulled sickies. Um, but, yeah, yeah so never, that... Don't, we're NHS workers. Of course no, not. No, no, never do that. I mean, you, then you don't get to become a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, and so potentially there's an argument that that could have swayed the battle mm. um, and allowed mm. Henry VII to win. Wow. Mm. There's another quite sort of key turning point um, between Henry VII and Henry VIII which was affected by the sweating sickness. Any guesses? Not so good without your Wikipedia uh, now, are you? Can, uh... <laughs> <laughs> this you're, isn't you're a drug. A <laughs> I'm a pharmacist, <laughs> I don't know these things. <laughs> uh, I don't know. What do you think? What, what decides if you're the king? If your father was the king? Uh, if you're firstborn? And he wasn't firstborn. Of course he wasn't, wasn't firstborn. Firstborn. Yeah. Drop. Yeah. <laughs> Drank a lot of strong wine. Yeah. <laughs> so he had an older brother. He Arthur. did, who was promised to Catherine of Aragon. Yes, they were married. They were married. And six months into their marriage, he Arthur got the sweating sickness. He got the sweating sickness and wow. died at a. I believe Super he was about age. 14, 15, 16. I think Henry VIII organophosphate poisoned his uh, old brother. So we could have had a genuine King Arthur. There's an alternative universe <laughs> where we had a King Arthur. Yes, so and this then, yeah. this is the, yeah, There's there were two schools of thought. There were two passages in the Bible um, about whether or not you should take your dead brother's wife and they used them interchangeably for kind of what they wanted to do. So that's a whole other podcast but um, so the so the the disease kind of continued to just appear and it wasn't every year it was there was there were sort of gaps in between um but it would pop up um summer to autumn time take out a huge chunk of the population and then disappear again um, and we had some of the physicians at the time, um, so the English doctor John Keyes, um, who documented what the symptoms looked like, what the progression of the disease looked like, to you know try and unpick what was going on, which we've we've kind of mentioned um, amongst ourselves that sometimes we think, wouldn't it be cool to have worked in the past when we didn't have yeah, so many out. answers, and mm. you could you could work it out yourself. I mean, I'm. I'm pretty sure I'm glad I wasn't doing this job, but it, it was, you know, trying to, to unpick what was causing this disease that was... I'm still saying it was some sort of weird organophosphate. Bella's sitting on the fence. Bella's on the fence. Canal's going from Vladimir Putin is a time. Um, 
physicians who had first-hand knowledge documented the the symptoms and so in the future and now we've looked at those and tried to match them to, to diseases that we know and we understand um, and we basically the jury's still out we don't know mm. but um, one of the possible things that they postulate is um, a hantavirus really nice to think about is spread by inhalation of rodent droppings mm. rodent droppings mm. Mm. and cause similar symptoms to the sweating sickness um, and they kill by bleeding and complications of the heart and lungs so yeah and we didn't really understand hygiene we yeah. didn't you know people Sanitation. didn't wash we didn't plus right rodent numbers go up and down with the seasons don't oh. they so Maybe that's the reason, yeah. Yeah, and the... I'm trying to find from my notes when the last outbreak was. I think it was 1551, and then it just went away. away. Mm. So unless it comes back, which I sincerely hope it does not, um, Mm. we may never know what caused it. But the the plague that may have changed history. Excellent. Mm. Cheers. That's a fantastic story. Thank you, Kim. Cheers. That's, I learned some stuff there, that's cool. Brilliant, thank you so much. <laughs> right then guys, so, what do we think of our wine then? I think it was a very good wine. I think it's, it was an interesting wine. It was, I'm just, if like we've missed it, but as we've been getting through the bottles, and the bottle's now polished, if you're looking at it now, there's a lot of nice organic sediment at the bottom of it, so... Sediment is normal. Yeah, no, it's absolutely fine, absolutely fine. It's definitely very tanniny once you get to this point. My, my mouth yeah. is quite dry it's now. Quite, mm. Yeah, I've had to get a glass of water. I think it's one that you would easily have with food. Mm. Oh yeah, definitely. I think, I think bold is the word. This, mm. is, this is definitely mm. a bold wine. Supposedly it gets less tanniny, if that's the correct term, as it's older. Mm. So the, the younger wines have got, the, the younger Chateau Neuf de Pape has more tannin than an older one. Would. Yeah, that would be the acid in the wine that will yeah. break down the tannins over time, but which is Good, but I, I'm not a big fan of booze straight before it. So if we're going quacks-wise, our normal quacks out of five, I'd be, look, I'd be looking at a three out of a three quacks out of five for me today. Three quacks. Three quacks out of five. Quacks. I did enjoy it, but to me, the booze that's straight up at the beginning just isn't my taste. This is my go-to one. No, no, it's a good one. <laughs> you did well, Jamie. You did well. Oh, good no. job, Jamie. <laughs> uh, Bella, what did you think of the Chateau Neuf de Pap? I really liked it. Again, like I said earlier, I think it would be one of those, as with all wine, it's better enjoyed with food, and we've just mm. been having it kind of sipping away while we've been chatting over this podcast. Yeah. So I don't... I think I'm judging it purely on having it without a meal, so I'm going to go the same and give it three. Three out of five? Three three. out of five quacks, okay. Kim? So I... I quite I I like this wine as well, um, and but I'd agree with what Bella said of it's it's nice with a sort of hearty, mm. um, sort of French dish. It's steak fodder. Wine. It is absolutely. Um, but I I do like um, which is my go-to food. Um, 
but it's a very it's a very rich wine it's it's very drinkable um i will give it we, 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 did we go halves last time? We did. We did. We did. We did. I'm, I'm, I'm going to give... You just I'm can't gonna... go to 2.25. You can go to 0.5. Unless it's the, the overall average. Absolutely. The <laughs> average is fine. Uh, I am going to go for... Three and a half quacks. 3.5. Quacks? Quacks. 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 3.5 <laughs> quacks. Okay. Um, so... Defend your wine, Jamie. Defend my wine. So what I will say is, um, I think this is a very social wine. I think this is a good wine to bring, uh, as we've worked out, it's very alcoholic. Mm. I think it would be very good to bring to a party to get people talking. And I think it's probably one, as you just kind of just said, to drink with a good hearty meal behind mm. it. My mouth is very dry from all the tannins. <laughs> um, Maybe all the talking drink. as well. Yeah, probably that as well. Um, so I'm going to give this a solid, ooh, I'm going to give it three quacks. Oh, well. oh three quacks. surprising. It's three. So I don't think it's as good as the one last episode. Yeah. I, I gave that three and a yeah. half, so, you know, it's all relative, isn't it? That's it. So what have we got, Canal? So we've got, because I was taught how to work out averages at university, um, <laughs> we've got... Well, I did maths before university, so, uh, you know, that shows what your education was, was like. <laughs> there was maths before university. <laughs> uh, so we've got a 3.125. So three and a quarter. Out of five. Three and a quarter. Three and a, three, no. Three and <laughs> Sorry, an three and an eight. Yes, I'm now, losing it. Uh, now so I've also failed my maths. A quack and a... Well, thank you very much. That was the history of opium, brilliant, and the mysterious sweating illness. Mm. And that was the Chateau Neuf de Pape and My Dreams Broken. Thank you, Carl. <laughs> wine is wine. We love wine, but wine has to be... Judged all wines are relative. All wines are relative. All wines are, all wines are situated. <sighs> Thank you, Bella. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you, Kim. Thank you, Jamie. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye, all.